Welcome to the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts about democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. In this feed, you will find a sampling of episodes from our podcast and the Democracy Group, as well as recordings from our events. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please visit democracygroup.org to find more like this. Now let's get to our featured episode. Welcome to Politics is Everything, a podcast of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. I'm Kara Onwayley, and co-hosting this episode with me is David Earle, Director of Development. We have joining us Tim Miller, an MSNBC analyst, writer-at-large at The Bulwark, and host of Not My Party on Snapchat. He is author of a new book called Why We Did It that aims to explain why Washington, D.C. politicos who knew better went along with Trump. Enjoy the episode. Tim, I want to ask you about at what point in your life, what was what was the thing that triggered you to decide that you were just going to leave it all on the field? Mm. Um, you know, I think that in life there, uh, you know, in the movies, there is that like one aha moment um, where you say, oh, wait, I'm, I'm totally doing this wrong. And um, I, I think in my experience, uh, the two big moments of my life that I cover in the book, you know, where I, I made decisions that, that impacted me, uh, you know, one was coming out of the closet and the other was leaving the Republican Party. There's some parallels there, uh, even though on the, on the latter half, I brought the shame on myself. <laughs> on the former half, people brought it on me unfairly. Um, and in both cases, there just wasn't that, right? I, I mean, like there, there were some inflection points I look back on. Um, uh, you know, I, I wrote uh, for the students they can Google Larry Craig when I was coming out of the closet. I was like, Larry Craig was an eye opening for me. He was an old senator who was tapping his foot in the bathroom, hoping to get a handy. I was like, man, I'm, I don't want to be that sad old man. Uh, so that was like a moment, but I still didn't come out of the closet to certain people in my life for like years after that. Uh, as far as the Republican Party, um, you know, I got this offer to be uh, part of what was called Our Principles Pack. I got a phone call, uh, and and I'd been working for Jeb Bush. Uh, he, we we lost the primary in 2016. Don't know if you heard about that. Uh, and uh, I get a call a couple days later. I'm laying on the beach, and they say, "Hey, we need a spokesperson for this pack called Our Principles Pack." The principle of which was going to be stopping Donald Trump from becoming the president. And um, I. I to be honest, at the moment, that sounded really fun and right. It sounded like a combination of this is something that I believe in and I also will really enjoy going on TV and jousting with moronic Donald Trump surrogates um, and, uh, and, and debating them. And, and so I, I, I had some people in my life, including Jeb, who told me that this was not like a great idea, like, the, like I was really risking my career and, uh, you know, that... I, uh, I might want to be a little more circumspect. You never know. This guy could win. And I was just in my head. I was just like, I don't, I don't think that that is true. I, I don't, I'm not, I, I, I don't expect him to win. And if he does win, I, I don't think that I'm going to care. And so I really went, went for, took that first step in this process kind of blind without really thinking to myself, Oh, well, I'm going to leave this all out on the field. And then spent the next seven years kind of in and out of this fight at times thinking, you know, maybe I should retire and become a shepherd and go or go get a get away from politics altogether. You know, uh, at times even doing some work that was helping. I wrote about this in the book, people who are kind of adjacent 
to the Republican Party still because it was my career. I didn't know what else to do. And then finally, eventually, it wasn't really till 2019 when, when he was up for re-election that I decided, no, I need to fully dedicate myself to trying to stop him. And, uh, and so uh, it, it, I think that in a lot of ways, that is how life is. You don't have these kind of snap moments. Um, you have to slowly but surely make, make right decisions over time and have them compound on, on themselves. So in your new book, you reveal a lot of the strategies that you uh, pursued as a self-described hitman um, and, and talked a lot about what's gone on inside of the party. Um, why, why did you write this book right now and what are you hoping to accomplish by revealing these inside stories and strategies? Yeah. So I thought that there'd been a lot of books out of the Trump era that was like, oh, here's this crazy thing that happened behind the scenes or, or Donald Trump is awful or Donald Trump is amazing. Right? Like those are basically the three genres of books that were written during the Trump era. Uh, and I, I felt like none of them really hit on the thing that was the most vexing to me and interesting to me about the Trump era, which is, which is why you know, the people who had all these re- like, oh my goodness, can you believe they said that behind the scenes reveals in these other books, right? Like my friend Jonathan Martin wrote, this will not pass and, and has this, the Kevin McCarthy on audio, you know, trashing Trump. And then, you know, in public, he's uh, going down to Mar-a-Lago to suckle on his toes, right? And it's like, okay, well, but, but those books didn't, because they're journalists who are outside of the political process, they didn't really cover what, why. Like, why is Kevin McCarthy doing this? And that, I think people think they know, right? Oh, power and ambition. But, but still, for there to be so many people to go along with something that they all say in private they think is terrible, there's just this psycholo- interesting psych- psychological element to that. And so, and I felt like since they were all my colleagues, having worked in Republican politics, having been a Republican hitman, that and having left um, over Trump, I, I, I felt like I had a unique perspective on that, on why on why they did it. Uh, hence, the, hence the title. Um, and so, in, but I felt like in order to do that, right, in order to you know, rather than just kind of putting them on the couch and judging them and wagging my finger at all these people that I knew that went along with Trump, to first do that, I had to kind of explore, okay, well, what was it about the culture that 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 got them comfortable doing that, right? Like, what was it about what I participated in that, um, you know, made created an environment that like 90% of the people that I worked with all went along with something that I found to be unbelievably evil, right? What, what, what are some examples of when I did that, right? Of when I went along with something that I knew was wrong at some level, why did I do that? Right? So, so I decided to write a book that was the first half was that was kind of reflecting back on, on my era in politics, which was basically 08 campaign, Sarah Palin, John McCain, through 2016. And, and the first half was a reflection on, on that. And then the second half, I, I felt like by that point, I'd kind of built the credibility, hopefully with the audience of, of recognizing my own motivations uh, to talk about these other people's motivations. Yeah. And, and, and Tim, what, when you talk about that evolution, um, I, I'm looking forward to talking about that second half of the book in a moment. But what, what I found really compelling about that first half of the book was the way you sort of describe the, the the evolution of finding ways to sort of weaponize maybe the base instincts of of the base of, of the party 
with the notion of like the rage juice and you talk about IJR and how they tried to mix the hard news while also giving some like juicy tidbits that would get people really active and get them super, super um, activated on social media and help things go viral. And at a certain point it became clear, right? That um, the rage juice was just so much more valuable and monetizable and, and powerful than the actual hard news and that there was no longer any vegetables. It was just all red meat. And, you know, I, I think you're seeing that ecosystem develop late on the other side uh, of the aisle, but it's developing. Um, how do yeah. you see those, those things evolving? Do you see like, how did, what were the sort of, con- the, the decisions that were made for that to, to sort of develop and explode to the, the media environment, particularly online that we're in right now? And how does anyone responsible turn that back in on something built on more, whether it's, you want to call it hard news, whether you want to call it democratic values, whether you want to call it whatever it is, something more arguably responsible. Uh, yeah. I, well, I think it's going to take a lot of time to turn back to something more arguably responsible. Uh, this, this developed over a long time. So fixing, it's going to take a long time, but, but basically when I, I go back to kind of put it in context, listeners, what I was trying to understand is, okay, how did, like Donald Trump is ridiculous, right? He's a trolling buffoon, right? And, and just an in, insult machine. So, okay, how did my friends start to say, okay, this is acceptable, right? This is something that not maybe not even acceptable that I that I like, that I appreciate, that he's good at this. And what I really found was we got comfortable in this game of politics, right? Where where the highest purpose was not helping people, uh, it was not public service. Uh, but was in winning, winning campaigns, winning news cycles, winning the most retweets, winning, uh, getting the most people to give us $5 when they send us those crazy emails, Uh, like these little wins throughout the day. And like this game is what we prioritized, right? And and as part of that, uh, we really set aside a lot of what you're talking about, the nutritious elements of of the public debate, uh, because for the same reason that they put the National Enquirer at the front of the grocery store and the crazy magazines at the front and not you know the FT and the Atlantic, uh, people people want the eye candy, right? Like people And people want the things that are going to rile them up. And so we started feeding the base this. There's always a little bit of this, right? If you go back to the 80s, there was 90s, Rush Limbaugh was there. But this was balanced, right? People listened to Rush Limbaugh also watched it, Tom Brokaw and Dan Rather at night, right? That, and we slowly, over over my time in politics in the 2000s, created an entire ecosystem where readers uh, would not even have to really engage with uh, what was happening in the real news, right? And and they could go to Fox, yeah, on TV, right? And then on so and then on Facebook, you could get the information from who knows where, and and so we felt good. We felt like those of us who are on the campaign operative side, you know, were like oh man we could we would feed stuff to drudge or feed stuff to fox or feed stuff to these online websites and like sometimes our tongue would be in our cheek or we would be exaggerating or you know we'd be taking stuff out of context or what you know these little sacrifices right i I had we but we thought we were in control right i had bumpers i didn't ever you know had somebody given me a laptop of a candidate's kid doing cocaine i i don't think i was going to leak that Right, because it wasn't really relevant to the candidate, right? Like we we had certain lines. We didn't just totally make stuff up out of out of whole cloths. Like we won when we lost, right? But we exaggerated, um, and 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 you know we we really enjoyed 
you know, what we called a good hit, like a good hit was something that would take down, you know, the, the other side. And, and so, you know, if you fast forward then to 2015, Donald Trump comes on the scene and he just takes away all those guardrails, right? Like he, this game that we thought we were really good at, he's a master at. And he's been working the tabloids in New York. Um, he doesn't have any shame. He doesn't have any, like I said, guardrails. And so Trump uh, th- uh, um, took away all those little false limits. And, and so these little, the little bits of rage juice I'm talking about that we've been feeding people every day, so, gives you something to be mad about today, give you something to be mad about tomorrow, give you something to be mad about the next day. Trump was even better at that. He was, you know, he had the, for Breaking Bad watchers, he had the blue meth, right? Like he was giving people the ju- the stuff that was really good and, and that made them feel really mad at the other side or, or really righteous in their own side. And, 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 you know, now we're just on this downward spiral that's unfixable. I, a, a funny thing in the post book is I wrote about Breitbart as part of, you know, one of the bad elements of making, of, of dragging us you know, into this space. Uh, I did a whole chapter on them. And, um, and one of the Breitbart guys calls me after the book is out and he says, you really nailed it. He said, you, you got, he's like, you're the one, you're the one moderate rhino cuck who understands the power that we have, but you missed one thing. He said, we, we have some limits too. Um, you know, after the election, we weren't going along with the crazy Kraken stuff that, that Sidney Powell was doing about the Hugo Chavez and the voting machine. So we didn't publish that stuff. We just published some of the questions about the mail. And, and, and I just laughed. And I was like, this is what I'm talking about. There's no bottom here, right? Like even the Breitbart guys are now saying, wait a minute. No, look at those guys. They're, they're feeding even crazier rage juice over here at Gateway Pundit or Libs of TikTok or whatever it is. And so I, I, I think that, that reeling that back in, you know, is going to take a long time of rebuilding trust with people and reorienting the way that we structure our media outlets. And I do worry about this. I think that there's some differences on the left and right, mostly in the makeup of who the people are and what kind of information they want. Um, and uh, But I do think that there is certainly a similarity when you look at left-wing media about this notion that every day they got to feed their audience this little bit of information that makes them hate Republicans more, this little bit of information that makes them feel more righteous, and um, at, at the expense of, uh, you know, maybe questioning whether their own side was right about certain things or, you know, going doing deeper analysis that, that, that plums the gray areas. Um, you know, there are places that do that, of course, on the left, but but you can certainly get yourself into an ecosystem that's kind of parallel to the right ecosystem where you're not getting challenged ever. And I do think there's a danger to that. Yeah, I want to press you a little bit more on on this theme. Um, sure. And, you know, you've said it's, you know, it's going to take a long time, um, you know, to fix this. What do you see as kind of, you know, some first steps, some medium term steps and some long term steps to really fix you know, this really, I mean, it's really a challenging, complex issue um, that is, I mean, it's, it has really infected our, our political process um, uh, and, and, and politics. Um, and, and so how do we, how do we step it back? And then you also mentioned, you know, there's differences on the left and right. What do you, what do you see are as, as those differences? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I, for starters, we're trying to create spaces where you know, people can disagree in good faith again uh, is, is, I think, a good starting place for this, um, for conversations. I think this is, again, going to start mostly at an elite level, but things start at an elite level and then trickle down. 
but uh, you know, I don't not, not to do self plugs, but we've got uh, our website. The Bulwark is is a mostly center space. We invite people from the left. Like we invite people that are more uh, Trumpist than us. We don't really invite full magas, so even we're not fully following on that goal. But you know, it's people that on policy issues have a broad range. Um, and the, you know, the Snapchat show that I do is the same. Most of the kids that listen to my Snapchat show, not my party, are conservative or from conservative families but like don't feel comfortable with the MAGA stuff, but also don't like a lot of the, you know, quote unquote, uh, woke stuff that's happening on their campus. They're trying to find a balance. So it's not about just being a centrist, but, but just saying like, how can we kind of discuss together and find other places to do that? And I think that's a, a first step. Another step is, is the media companies have to reorganize. How are we, um, you know, what, what is our model here, right? Like the, the click-based uh, you know, advertising model is completely broken and has led us to here, right? And so how can we reorient that and and buttress that with subscribers and, and by actually creating relationships with readers, building trust with readers rather than having these cheap calorie, oh, you click on this and then I get a pop-up ad, you know, I get money. Uh, the advertising model, I think, and some, I think you can see some media companies trying to do this. The down, The negative side of that is, new things prop up all the time. And it's like playing this whack-a-mole. I mentioned libs of TikTok earlier. People talk about the disinformation on Twitter. Like that was really unmanageable, but I, I actually think it is kind of manageable. And, you know, uh, there is a moderation solution to, to it uh, because everything on Twitter is searchable. Uh, TikTok is like this vast ocean of shit. I, and like, there's some good stuff on there. There's some really interesting stuff. There's some fun stuff on there. Uh, but there also is, just, you know, every once in a while I'll be scrolling through the feed and somebody will be talking complete nonsense. I, it'll be, you know, worse than Tucker Carlson level misinformation. And, you know, I'll look over at the little heart there and it'll have, you know, 500,000 likes. I mean, like, who knows how many people are watching this? It's hard to search, hard to track down. So that part of this, the digital media ecosystem where people can go find this information if they want it, that's a much deeper cultural problem that I, I just, I don't want to pretend like I know the solution to. So I, I want to really briefly, you mentioned at the start of this sort of this discussion or this part of the answer, the notion of it's going to start with the elites. And for the students who are listening to this podcast, for all the folks that we're talking about here, right? Can you talk about who you're talking about when you're talking about the elites in that ecosystem? Because not only... Is it the quote unquote beltway people or the sort of institutionalists who have been active in politics? There's also the dynamic of funding whatever you do, right? Someone had to fund our principles pack. So who are the elites that we're talking about and what's that ecosystem? Yeah, I mean, it's responsible donors, right? Rich, rich folks who fund, uh, you know, I mean, uh, Steve Jobs' wife, for example, is funding The Atlantic, is funding a lot of these local papers to try to reinvigorate local news. I, I think that's really encouraging. Uh, Lorraine Powell Jobs, sorry, I don't want to diminish her. I just was blanking on her name for a second. Um, Lorraine Powell Jobs is, is funding that. Um, so that is part of it. I think just in every community, look, people have community leaders, right? And influencers. Uh, who are the people that are running the media sites? Um, you know, who are people that are leaders on campus, right? I, the, you can incentivize, uh, you go to the companies that, that have these communications tools. You know, what is, I think that, you know, I have my shows on Snapchat, so it's a plug, but I think that Snapchat's doing a pretty good job, actually, of managing the information flow on, on, on its pages. Now you can't control the one-to-one -one snaps you're sending people, but like on the broadcast channels, um, you know, snap has pretty tough rules. Um, 
uh, I'd like to see the other uh, social media companies be more responsible in that. Um, There's nothing anti-free speech about like managing what is on your platform, right? There's this notion that, that on the, on the right, where it's like any sort of censorship is of, by these platforms is anti-free speech. And that's just wrong. It's, it's gatekeeping. That's what we've always had. Right. And, and if you have a total non-free speech platform, what you get is 8chan or 4chan, right? Like I, trust me, I, I consulted for Facebook for a little bit. If you don't do any moderation, then, then your entire site gets just overrun with trolls and scam artists and porn and weird stuff. Right. And so you have to, find lines someplace, right? Like, um, in, in order to have a useful site. So, uh, people running campaigns, right? That's what my, this is what, why we did it is about is about people running campaigns need to have a responsibility to the whole public, not just to winning campaigns. So when I say elites, it's, it's kind of everybody in that, that, that plays a role in our information ecosystem from the funders to the, uh, to the media outlets, to the campaigns, uh, to the companies that are that are involved, and just just to go back to that original question, really quick on the difference between the Democrats and the Republicans, I, I don't. I want to be very careful in my language here. I don't. I, I, I am not trying to say that people who have a college degree are are smarter or better or whatever. But but there's a different kind of way that people who have gone to college take in information, and it's not like they can't be fooled by fake news or scams. They can, but. But it just, uh, you know, they, they have uh, like more of, a, of an experience of, of, of getting this kind of info. And so if, the de- if we're polarizing as a country along education lines, which we are, the party that has more college educated voters, that has more div- racial diversity, that has, you know, I joke that the Democratic Party coalition now is, it goes all the way from extreme socialists like, like Bernie or Angela Davis or AOC, maybe she's not that extreme, but you know, socialists all the way to neocons like me and Bill Crystal, right? Like, so the part the party is, has, is much more heterogeneous in its ideological views and its uh, race. And, and so I, I think that creates um, some antibodies against, uh, against extremism uh, that uh, the Republican party just didn't have, right. I think the Republican party, because it's so homogenous, it was much more easy to be kind of taken over by a cultish figure. And, um, and, and there's a lot more grievance that's been, that's driving the Republican base right now. So I think those are kind of the key differences, which I think makes the Democrats less susceptible to the kinds of things that I raised a flag about, about the Republican Party. But that doesn't mean that it's impossible, that we can't see the same trajectory happening. So I want to switch gears for a little bit. A lot of people were shocked by January 6, 2021, um, the attack on the U.S. Capitol and attempted coup. Um, yeah, it, it really should not have been a shock to, to anyone, right? Um, what was your reaction, though, um, you know, as it was unfolding? And what does accountability for January 6th look like to you? Yeah, I, no, we were sounding the alarm uh, over at the Bulwark for two months um, saying I had been watching. I wrote an article for, um, where I watched Newsmax for an entire week, uh, I think right after Christmas. And anybody that actually engaged in these conservative ecosystems, the siloed conservative ecosystems I'm talking about, should have seen this coming. I mean, the, the rhetoric was so incendiary. Um, the anger. Uh, yeah, I was watching a, a pre-Trump speech. They were doing interviews with people in the crowd and the type of language they were using. 
this apocalyptic language, civil war, revolutionary language. It was just evident that, that this was hitting a fever pitch and that nobody was doing, you know, nobody with credibility within the, that audience was doing anything to tamp it down. This is going back to elites have responsibilities. Leaders have responsibilities to do things besides channel the passions of the audience. So, um, you know, when it happened, I was obviously, and some of the images were horrifying, and you just don't ever expect the Capitol to have Donald Trump flags over it like we're some third world hunter. But um, but, but the notion that there was going to be violence then or another day was not surprising to me. Um, the other thing that wasn't surprising to me, I went on, we have a live stream that we do on Thursday nights, and I went on it that night, and a lot of the other people at the Bulwark were saying that maybe this is going to be the moment that gets people to wake up. And I, and I said, no, I don't think so. I really don't. Because, um, you know, what I've been starting to write the book at that point, what I was finding out is that, is that there's just this deep well of hatred and resentment within the Republican base and within the Republican elites, the types of people that work on campaigns, the types of people that work in politics. They've, they've come to really hate the left, to have there's some racial animus there. Uh, but some of it is really just more like petty, uh, petty cafeteria style grievance, right? Like they don't like that they're considered, you know, whatever, dumber or the outcast or whatever. They have this resentment that is built up and, and that, that resentment isn't going to go away just because, because some people acted, um, over the line on January 6th to, to put it very mildly. Uh, and so that's why I, I don't, I do think there need to be accountability for the people at the top. Um, for this reason, I, I have, I have like an empathy really for the people that were there that day, not the people that were heading cops. Okay. The, that's over the line, but people, I don't, you know, the guy with the horns, I wrote an article about this. You know, the guy with the horns, uh, the, the, I forget what they call them. Uh, the shaman, he didn't hurt anybody. I don't Does he really need to go to jail for three years? Like that person is mentally, um, uh, you know, uh, he's 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 like in a cult, right? Like he he his his mental capacity wasn't fully there to make these decisions. He was lied to by Donald Trump, by media members, by people that he trusted, by the president, by by other members of Congress. These people were all lied to, and so every human has has individual responsibility, of course. But but I, I have sympathy for them. Like if you keep being told. That the country is being stolen from you. That the end is nigh. That that everything that you hold dear is is going to be wiped away because they stole this election. Is it kind of logical that you would be there that day, going into the Capitol? Like if you believe that, if you've been made to believe that, so I have empathy for them. I I, I believe there needs to be accountability for the people that perpetrated the lie, Rudy Giuliani, the former president, and I and I hope there will be. Can I ask a follow-up question to, you mentioned, you know, that there is this sort of deep-seated um, hatred, resentment, racial animus. Um, you, you talk a little bit about how, you know, folks don't uh, see themselves as being the hero anymore in Hollywood or, yeah. you know, in, in, in the media. Um, you know, what can really be done about that? While at the same time, you know, I, I want to, you know, there's this sense of like this pushback against quote unquote wokeness, right? Um, and yet, you know, we we have a lot of historically marginalized communities, you know, who have lived under oppression for a long time. You know, do you see any sort of uh, way to kind of acknowledge and repair um and ensure that everyone has a chance, um, you know, to participate equally and meaningfully in our political system. 
Yeah. So I'm just, I'm of two minds of this, right? Because life isn't fair, right? On one hand, this isn't fair, right? You know, black people, gay people, we can go down the list of marginalized communities didn't storm the Capitol, um, you know, when we were being denied marriage or being denied equal justice under the law or whatever it is historically. Um, and, and so, uh, you, you want to say kind of tough cookies to the, to the aggrieved working class, you know, whites who are, who are upset right now about the fact that they feel like the culture is changing on them. Uh, but on the other hand, that is only going to continue to, to spiral this, um, this polarization in the country. And, and, and we have to have mutual understanding. And, and I do understand that, um, you know, if you are a person that lives in whatever, rural Ohio, and you're, the factory left town, the housing crisis hit, you ended up, you, you ended up in debt, your dad had a real middle-class job, and you have trouble getting one, you're struggling, um, you feel like you're villainized in the media, you feel like you're villainized in Hollywood, um, and there's this one guy that's coming back and saying, no, actually, you're the real Americans, you're great. I, I, I can understand how that's appealing, right? I, I just, I can't. It might not be fair, I might not, you know, whatever, it might be privilege, but I, but it, it's understandable. And so we have to be able to tr- communicate with people in those communities and explain, you know, how we can help give them a leg up and help be responsive to their legitimate grievances. Cause they have some illegitimate grievances, racism or whatever, but they have some legitimate grievances really too. And I don't think that right now the kind of democratic elite, um, is very, keep using that word is very good at, um, at engaging them. Um, and so I think that that is something that has to be, that has to be done. Um, and, and I don't, you know, know again, how long is it going to take to, to, uh, to get things back to, to, and there's really, it was no good back, right? Because there, as you were saying, there were marginalized communities in the past. There's always somebody who's being marginalized, but to get things to a more stable place, it's going to take a lot of time. It took us a lot of time to get here. So, you know, the, the book subtitle is the travelogue from the Republican road to hell. The road's been going on since the sixties. Right. And so we're not just going to snap our fingers, but, but uh, we have to s- start trying to, to repair the fabric. Central violence were really, really hard. Right. And you kind of have this like, or whether it was being a member of a Greek organization and having to reconcile the fact that like there have been a, a record of fraternities uh, acting irresponsibly. Right. Let's just and, and, and that there needs to be that sort of policing. And the automatic response, I think, is to be defensive and maybe a little denialist. Right. To say, like, wait, what you're describing is the foundation of my experience. For me, it was also the Boy Scouts. Right. Which had its yeah. own issues. Like these institutions that we sort of elevate sort of becoming like looking suddenly problematic. You say, well, no, that wasn't my experience. How dare you say that about this, this global issue? within a part of my identity. And I want to connect that to what the Center for Politics is trying to do so much, which is civic education, right? And civic education is in some ways, right? I think we we want to demonstrate that, hey, there's a reason we're promoting the the American system of governance because it's an implicit endorsement. But there's also that, that acknowledgement of like the ongoing work and the recognition of this being an experiment that needs to be constantly modified and improved and enhanced and 
how we can educate people to accept and embrace that just because we are identifying problems or just because we are saying we got to take an L on this one as a country and that doesn't undermine the fact that the country can and is good or, or can be good or is good depending on how you want to argue it and I'm not here to put words in other people's mouths but to talk about it in the sense of continuous improvement and continuous improvement requires an acknowledgement of past failures or inefficiencies or whatever that is and how to get folks to be willing to say, this is a problem and not take it so personally and say, well, that real America and that real American within you is still American, but there may be some philosophies or there may be some assumptions that you've been taught to have that need to be reevaluated. Yeah, I can do a whole hour on this. Maybe you just fly me to Charlottesville, but um, that... Because uh, I think the challenge comes from both sides of this equation, right? Like the Catholic school and anal- the Catholic analogy is great. I also was raised Catholic and and you know had the same experience within my family, um, and and it's similar actually to the Republican Party experience, right? Like people, this is part of your identity, right? If something is part of your identity ends up being tainted, you do become defensive, you do retreat into your corners, and it's it's really hard to be the one that's the turd in the punch bowl. You know, that's but but we have to kind of cultivate that, right? I'm I'm a very I'm very much a pro turd in the punch bowl uh, person right now, and it's part part of my TED talk. But um, uh, you know, you, you just uh, because yeah, great, uh, perfect, and and because that that's obli- that's all of us, all of our obligation, right? And it's and it's hard to be that person, right? And to say that, and and, and you get ostracized within that community sometimes, or you get your eyes rolled at you. And, um, and you have to um, uh, kind of build up these internal antibodies, internal courage uh, in order to do that and to recognize, okay, this thing that I love, you know, maybe it's in some cases irredeemable, which I think is true about the Trump Republican Party. Maybe in some cases, like some of those other examples you use, the Boy Scouts, uh, it is very redeemable, but we need accountability for it to be redeemable. Um, you know, you got to be able to find that line, but it requires people who are on the inside getting outside of their comfort zone, getting outside of what feels safe and, and normal uh, in order to do that. And that's, you know, that's one of the things that I just grapple with in this book, talking to people how, how much the GOP ended up being part of their identity and how hard it was for them to, to admit fault. And so, uh, okay, so we need to be able to cultivate people admitting fault. Okay, but what's, part of, what's another part of that? The people who are on the outside of that group need to accept people that admit fault. Right. And, and, and not wag fingers, right. And not make them, not make it harder for people to do the courageous thing and accept fault. And, 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 and this is another key element of the book, right? Not everybody that was part of the Republican party is evil. Not everyone that is in the Catholic leadership is evil or the Boy Scouts leadership or whatever is evil. There were some evil people there. You know, there were some unrepentant, irredeemable people. Uh, if you read this, there's this great Atlantic story about, about the uh, child separation. And it's kind of crazy when you read it. Like there are really only three evil people, like Stephen Miller, Jeff Sessions, and one other guy that keep pushing for this and are relentlessly pushing for this. Everybody else is just a mid-level bureaucrat or high-level bureaucrat who's trying to stop it, trying to, to massage it, and then gets beaten down. And over time, uh, you know, they, they, can't figure out a way to stop it. And so they start to justify it in their own head, right? Those are all people that were gettable, right? If, if we put them in a different culture in a different environment and, 
And, and so in order to fix anything, you need the flawed, we're all flawed, the flawed people that want to do the right thing, uh, you need to either give them an exit ramp or give them a path to redemption. And, um, and so it requires kind of courage on both sides when it's much easier to actually retreat to our corners. And if you're part of the tainted group to say, no, my group's great. And if you're outside the tainted group to just wag your finger and say, everybody in that group is evil. And, and like, that's the much easier thing to do. We need to fight against that. And Tim, I remember talking about the labels, right? I, I remember being an intern in, in DC. We both went to George Washington. And one of my bosses asked me, you know, I, I was working at a, a, a you know, government relations office for a, a, an association. And I was asked uh, what party I wanted to work for. And I, I remember I, I said, you know, it kind of depended on who the candidate was. I wasn't really sure which team I thought of myself as a member of necessarily. And I think, you know, I was in college in the second Bush term. And I think there were a lot of ideological um, overlaps at that time among the leadership of both parties. And I said, like, eh, it kind of depends on the person. And I remember this lobbyist saying to me, that's like not how it works in this town. Like you have, you have to pick a team. Like, and, and so when you have to pick a team and define yourself and maybe you get like one, you know, bout of free agency in your career, how, like, can you talk a little bit about what the downstream impacts are when it comes to policy, when it comes to gaps between political operatives and policy staff, like, is it healthy for us to say like, there's, you know, you're on the Republican team or team Democrat. And, you know, you have to sort of own that label. Yeah, I think, I, well, I think it contributes to the mindset that you're in, right? It contributes to this mindset of how people who knew better went along with Trump, right? They're like, I put on my team jersey, I defend my team no matter who it is. And in, in D.C., that culture is very um, uh, uh, widespread, Right. If you're a Republican, it's not just that you put that's your job that it is, but it's your, your friend group. It's the bars you go to the wedding, right? Like you, you create a whole, a whole community and identity around this. And I, I do think that's really unhealthy. I don't like to do the cliche. Oh, we should go back to Tim O'Neill and Ronald Reagan should have beers together. And like, that's a very eye rolly, but you know, we do have to within ourselves, you know, try to fight against this tribalist urge. I mean, I, I picked plenty on the Republicans. So let me just pick on the Democrats for one example. You know, I, I, I saw somebody um, last year um, uh, in the fall, uh, after, especially after it was kind of clear that like some of the science around the masking, you know, wasn't, you know, people, Omicron was a different animal than past, um, than past uh, COVID uh, uh, strains. And, you know, there are Democrats would say, well, I'm going to wear my mask because I don't want people to think I'm a MAGA, right? Like, that is a really really bad mindset, right? Like if you find yourself in this culture where you, you can't disagree with anything that the Democrats say, or you can't present yourself in any way as, as having a heterodox uh, kind of personality or view uh, without being fearing that you're going to be cast aside and be tarnished as a MAGA, that is just not healthy. That is a cult. That is the behavior. That is also the behavior of a cult. And it, it was when I saw it, it was very disturbing. It, it, it shot up some red flags that were similar to things that I've been seeing on the Republican side. Again, I think there are key differences, right? That people who are wearing masks are trying their best to be helpful, not trying their best to be cruel, right? So there are differences here, but the underlying that underlying element is is unhelpful. We need to cultivate an environment where people can can 
you know, speak out, right? That, we're all humans. Humans are like, the liberals do not have a monopoly on every right idea um, just because they tend have tended to have more, the more, be more correct during the Trump era, right? Uh, so they have to be able to be challenged from time to time and people should feel comfortable challenging it without worrying that then all of a sudden they're going to be labeled. That is, that is extremely unhealthy. You and I both went to, and I, I know we're running low on time, Tim, and I want, there's a couple of more questions, I think, from, from what we do with the civic education and the sort of civil participation work that we do. You and I both went to GW, uh, a school that, like UVA, is, has a lot of students who are coming in with a desire to be, to your point, in the mix, right, or in the game, or whatever those, you know, whatever terminology you want to use to make their impact on politics and policy. What about educating this next generation of students? Do you think that leadership, faculty, folks who are serving as like our scholars at the center, what are the things that you wish that you had been taught or advised as, you know, in your formative stages of getting involved in politics that could have had an influence or changed the path that we've seen over the last six or so years? The main thing I wish is, is and this is true of UVA grads and certainly G- and GW grads, we're, we're privileged, not just in our level of education and in many cases income, obviously not every case, um, but also in access to power, access to people of influence. Uh, there is this stu- really stupid top-down mindset in politics that like, you know, you have to be loyal you have to wait your turn. You have to sign up for this. Like that lobbyist told you, you have to pick your side. I'm like it's all kind of BS, right? I don't, I, the loyalty in, in DC is really very much a one-way street. It's from your boss to wanting you to be loyal to them. And so I'm not saying that, you know, you should be subversive or an, or jerk to be a jerk or a turn to punch bowl to be the turn to punch bowl, not for good reason. But if you feel like, oh, wait, this job is not actually... I don't feel like it's within my integrity or it's not, I I don't feel like we're making a positive net impact. There's so many jobs. There's so many people that are willing to help you. I just, my DMs are open. I'm always happy to help people who are trying to find work. There's so many interesting things you can do in Washington. And, and we've created an environment where it's like, Oh, you know, you have to be a killer. You know, you have to go be on the fast track uh, in order to get the cool jobs. I'm like, that's just not true. It's just not true. And it's something that I didn't realize in my twenties. And I went along with stuff. I, I, I feel like I didn't need to, because I thought, Oh, this is my chance. Like if I take this job, then I can get another job. You have lots of chances. Um, and that isn't true for people who are whatever working hour, hourly wage jobs. And, and like they, they have a different like choices in front of them. So recognize your privilege and use it to, to do something, um, uh, you know, to, to not put your, you know, submit to inertia and put yourself on some track where I've got to be loyal to the first person that hired me and go up the, um, go up the ladder. I, I actually think the kids in this generation are much, are much more aware of that actually than in our generation, but the, the, the temptation is still there. We've been talking with Tim Miller, an MSNBC analyst, writer at large for The Bulwark and host of Not My Party on Snapchat. Tim, really throughout our conversation, you've been highlighting ways in which our politics can and should be better. Your book, Why We Did It, is really an argument for making our politics better. But I'm still going to ask you this uh, question anyway. 
um, what would you do to fix our political system? Yeah, I'm gonna, we're going to end on a bad note here. Um, if I had the answer to that, I would have written that book. Uh, my editor of the book said, so the book ends um, pretty bleak, honestly. Um, uh, <laughs> and it ends with a friend of mine who got who is a good person uh, at heart but who, who got wrapped up in Trump world and ended up being there on the mall January 6th. Actually, her name was on a permit, uh, Caroline Wren. You can read about her in the news. And, and I try to get to understanding with her, uh, try to understand why she did what she did, why I did what I did. And, and we kind of end with like the same motivations that, have, that, that got us to this part, to this place, are still operable. And, and my editor wanted me to say, okay, this is a bleak ending. Can you do, can you write a last chapter that's like, okay, well, here's how we change that. And I just, I felt like all of my solutions were not up to the challenge because we really have a contaminated pool and, you know, pouring in a little bit of, of clean water isn't going to make the pool clean. Like this is a long, this is really a long-term effort um, that 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 uh, to, is going to have to try to reorient how we talk about politics in the public space and how we engage with politics in the public space. I'm hoping that the, that you know these uh, UVA students, people who are coming into politics now, are more native to you know some of these communications platforms and can help reorient. Um, you know, the, 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 the downward slide we've been on. I have some minor suggestions. I think there are things we should do. I think we should do jungle primaries. Um, you know, I, I would note that the only two Republican impeachers have survived primaries and they both were in these jungle primaries, which where everybody from both parties is in the same primary. So you're not as incentivized to speak to the base. I think there should be some reform of gerrymandering, but none of this stuff is a silver bullet. Like the problem is that our discourse is contaminated right now. And, and that is, I think, going to take a full generation to fix, or, or I hope to, that we can all engage at fixing it. Rather, otherwise, it's going to continue to get worse. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Politics is Everything. Editing and production was done by me. Our theme song is Let's Boogie by Chris Bays. Learn more about the Center for Politics and our work to strengthen democracy on our website at centerforpolitics.org. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at center number four politics. You can also send us a recording of your questions or ideas for strengthening democracy to CLO3S at Virginia.edu. Until next time. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Democracy Group. If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.